0: Our second reading this morning is from Romans chapter 10. I will read verses uh, 5 through 15. Romans 10 verses 5 through 15. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So I trust that you understand by now that there are two kinds of righteousness. That there are two ways of being right with God. There are two ways of being in a state of grace. There are two ways to be heaven-bound. The first way is to be, the first way to be righteous is to follow God's law. Always. And to the letter. If you follow God's law perfectly, if you never sin, then you're fine. You're righteous. You are right with God. You're in a state of grace and you are heaven bound. Now for those of us who fail to keep God's law perfectly, For those of us who have sinned, there is fortunately a second way to be righteous, and that is by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul writes, The righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Righteousness... Through faith in Jesus Christ, that is the gospel. The gospel is the announcement that there is a way to be right with God when we fail to keep his law perfectly. And that's through faith in Jesus Christ, which is good news for sinners. At the very beginning of his letter to the Romans, Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel is the power of God for salvation because if we fall into the hands of God as an unrighteous person, we're doomed. The salvation that the gospel offers is a salvation from the wrath of God. But why is God wrathful, you might ask. God is wrathful because God hates sin. But why does God hate sin, you might ask. Because sin kills life. Because sin mars beauty. Because sin corrupts justice. Because sin destroys harmony and peace. Because sin is contrary to every good thing that God makes. And God's love directed at everything he creates becomes God's wrath. Directed at anything that destroys his creation. God's wrath and God's love are two sides of the same reality. You just can't have the one without the other. Because God loves life, because God loves beauty, because God loves justice, because God loves peace and harmony, because God loves those good things that he has made, God hates sin which destroys them. A wrathless God, A God who doesn't hate sin, a a God who doesn't uphold and defend everything that is good and right and worthy in this world is a God who also doesn't love this world. There's a false version of the gospel floating out there. It's called antinomianism. Antinomianism says that the good news is that God doesn't get upset when his law is violated. That God gives everyone a pass rather than holding them accountable for their sins. Now, as someone who has committed plenty of sins in his life, as someone who continues to struggle with sin on a daily basis, that kind of alternative gospel can be attractive. Now, you might notice that the antinomian view of sin, namely that there are no eternal consequences for sin because God doesn't really care so much about that kind of stuff, is identical with the atheist view of sin. The atheist who denies that there is an eternal lawgiver, that there is a judge, he naturally thinks that there is no consequence for sin. And I mentioned this Because there are people who think of themselves as followers of Jesus, but who hold opinions on ethical issues that are identical to those held by atheists. Now, I'm not saying that atheists are always wrong. And I'm not saying that atheists are more evil than the average person. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that if your view regarding Basic ethical issues is the same as a view held by an atheist. You might want to pause and double-check yourself just to make sure you're not making a mistake. Okay, fair enough? Antinomianism sounds nice, especially if you're a sinner like me. Antinomianism sounds nice because it gets us off the hook. But here's the dark side of antinomianism. If God doesn't take right and wrong seriously, if God isn't furious with sin, then God doesn't defend the abused child. Then God doesn't uh, hold accountable the murderer. Then God doesn't exact revenge for genocide. Then God doesn't pay back the degenerate who shoots up a synagogue or a country western bar. If antinomianism is right, then God shrugs his shoulders and say, Well, you know, people are people. No need to get upset. I don't want to be too judgy. God is righteous. And he expects us to be righteous. As First 1 Peter 1.16 says, Be holy, for I am holy. Now, there are two paths to righteousness or to holiness. You can keep God's law perfectly all of the time. If you do... Then you're right with God and you're heaven bound. Or you can place your faith in Jesus Christ whose death on the cross was a punishment for your sin, past, present and future. By faith in Jesus, by his atoning death, you recognize that the law of God is upheld. Sin is punished. The penalty is paid. And you also recognize that the mercy of God is revealed, that God takes that punishment on himself so that we might not be destroyed. For those of you who have no chance of qualifying for the first kind of righteousness, the second kind of righteousness is good news. In fact, it's almost too good to believe. That God's law remains true and enforced, but that God bore the punishment for our sin himself so that we might be spared? That's news almost too good to believe, but it's true. And it's news so good that even the feet of the person bringing that news are seen to be beautiful. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. It's an interesting image, beautiful feet, an image used by the prophet to show just how important this good news really is. Now, I don't know how you feel about feet or about how your feet look, I don't. Know what you think about showing your feet to the world. These days we live in a culture of pedicures and nail polish and toe rings. But for the prophet Isaiah and his culture, feet were best kept out of sight. They were dirty, they were inelegant. Feet were not your best feature. So when the prophet sings, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of him who bring good news, he's drawing attention not to the feet, but to the good news and how great it is. The prophet Isaiah foresaw... News coming out of Jerusalem that the children of Israel who were living in exile and in slavery in Babylon would be set free and that God himself would show up in Babylon and bring the enslaved people back to their homeland. It was a promised salvation that prefigured a grander salvation that would finally come when Jesus arrived. Because the gospel sets us free from our Babylon. Because the gospel allows us to return to our God-given home country. So what I want to talk about in this sermon this morning are two questions. Question number one. What is the good news? If we had to reduce it to a few words that anyone could understand what would we say. And question number two, how should this good news be shared? Once we know what the good news is, how do we spread it? So let's take a look at question number one first. What is the good news? Steve Childers was the professor at the very first class I took at Reform Theological Seminary. It seems like a very long time ago now. But his opening exercise for the class, and mind you, everyone who's in this class is a pastor who has been working full-time in his field for at least five years. His opening exercise with this class was to have us write out a description of the gospel. Now you'd think that a room full of ministers would have no trouble explaining the gospel when asked. The Apostle Peter writes, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have but do this with gentleness and respect. What Peter is telling the whole church to ordinary rank and file Christians, Peter is telling this to all of those regular Christians that they should be able to share their faith at the drop of a hat. And so you'd certainly think that what's true of regular Christians in the pews should also be true of Preachers in the pulpit. As it turned out, children's opening exercise for a room full of pastors at Reformed Theological Seminary was not so easy as you might imagine. Now, maybe we were overthinking the whole thing, but the Apostle Paul exclaims in Romans eleven thirty three, "Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom." And knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments, how inscrutable His ways. It's true. The gospel is rich and it's deep. And really, if we tell the truth, the gospel is unsearchable and inscrutable. It is a profound mystery. It is God's own truth. But it's too much for the human mind to wrap itself around it completely or to plummet fully. We need to admit that. We need to be modest and cautious about what we claim to know. We need to say that we don't know everything, but we need to trust what the scriptures do tell us plainly. And here's what the word of God says in Romans ten nine: If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's deep, but it's also simple. The whole epistle to the Romans is Paul's complicated explanation of that gospel. We've been working through it since January. we got six more chapters to go. But here Paul reduces the gospel to this simple imperative. Believe and declare. Believe and declare and you will be saved. Believe what? Believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now notice... Carefully what the gospel is not. The gospel is not believe that Jesus loved everyone. The gospel is not believe that Jesus was a good man. The gospel is not believe that the whole world would be a nicer place if people started acting like Jesus. Those are true statements, but they're not the gospel. There's a difference. The gospel is about something supernatural. While those three truths that I just mentioned to you are all ethical statements. There's a difference between the supernatural and the ethical. You can believe ethical things about Jesus, that he was loving, that he was good, that the world would be nicer if we were more like him. Those are all ethical statements. And some people try to build a religion based on ethical claims rather than supernatural truths. The gospel is not ethical news. The gospel is supernatural news. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you will be saved. That's a supernatural statement. Now last Friday I sent to the session a video of a television interview with a minister in the United Church of Canada. Her name is Greta Vosper. And she's in the news because she has come out as an atheist. She used to believe in God and in other supernatural things, maybe when she was younger, but now she doesn't. And she's come out as an atheist, but she wants to continue to be a pastor in the Church of Jesus Christ. She believes that the Bible is a human construct and that the concepts of Jesus and God should be thought of as metaphors. She grew up in the church. She loves the church. She loves being in a minister. She loves the people in her church. She believes that the church is about fostering community, that it's about loving our neighbors, that it's about making the world a better place and ourselves better people. She believes that the church can be a potent ethical force for change in the world. And she believes all of that without any of that supernatural mumbo-jumbo. And she's missed the gospel. Because the gospel is not ethical news. It is supernatural news. Ethics is about law. Ethics is about behavior. Ethics is about how we should live our lives and conduct ourselves. The Pharisees excelled at ethics. Ethics. And yes, biblical religion contains an ethic. Biblical religion tells us how to live. Biblical religion contains a law. But if that's all you have, just instructions about how to live and how to create community and how to make the world a better place, if that's all you have, then you have a godless religion and you have a gospel-less religion. Because the gospel is not about the law. Because the gospel is about a righteousness that is beyond the law. And we have not held on to that gospel if we do not believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. If we do not believe supernatural things in our heart. We should love our neighbors. We should foster community. We should work to make the world a better place. But those righteous deeds will not save you. And if you build your religion on ethical demands and on religious deeds and on righteous deeds, if you build your religion on some system of law, even if you get to invent that system of law yourself according to your own whims or according to the latest most progressive fashions, Then you fall into the same hopeless trap that the Pharisees fell into. An endless treadmill of good works and performance. And you will never be good enough. Ethics are fine. The law is helpful. But keep them in their place because they won't save your eternal soul. For that you need something more radical. For that you need something supernatural. For that you need the gospel. The gospel announces a righteousness apart from the law, apart from good works. And that gospel contains the supernatural news that God raised Jesus from the dead. So do you believe that in your heart? The Bible says if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's all I want for you. Now there is something else in the gospel beyond just believing that Jesus was raised from the dead. Because even Satan believes that. And that something else is required for salvation and is contained in these words. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Let me take a look at those words very, very quickly. There are two parts to, those, to that statement. Part one is a statement of the lordship of Jesus. And part two is a statement of the public nature of the Christian faith. Part one, the lordship of Jesus. Saying Jesus is Lord is just an old-fashioned way of saying that Jesus is the boss. Or more precisely, that Jesus is my boss. All right? When we declare Jesus as Lord, we are saying that we take orders from Jesus. To be saved, we must not only believe certain facts about Jesus, like the fact that he was raised from the dead, like the fact that he was born of a virgin, like the fact that he lived a sinless life, but we must also recognize his authority in our lives, and we must obey him. That's where Christian ethics comes in, for those of you who are interested. Part two, the public nature of the Christian faith. You are not a Christian if people don't know you are a Christian. There are no secret Christians. Okay? In Matthew 10:32, Jesus says, "Everyone who acknowledges me before people, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And then in the following verse, Jesus says, but whoever denies me before people, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Our salvation depends on us being public about our faith. Christianity is an out-of-the-closet religion. All right, that's enough about question number one. We can talk about question number two. Question number one was, what is the gospel? Question number two is, how should the gospel be shared? Much of the answer to this question, which is a question about the methods of evangelism, are actually embedded in everything that we've already talked about in that first part of the sermon. But let me just lift up two points. Truth number one, because the gospel is supernatural and not merely ethical, we need to be honest about that fact right up front. If we're squeamish about the supernatural truths of our faith, we will be tempted to focus on the more rational or naturalistic aspects of our faith. Like our ethics, like our good deeds, like our kindness and our generosity, like our pretty music and our buildings. And when that happens, the good news is no longer about God and it's about us. It's a focus on how good we are and our good deeds. We sometimes think that we're attracting people to Christ when we're just trying to attract them to ourselves. Our focus must be on Christ and Christ crucified. So my first bit of advice about sharing the good news is to understand what it is. It's supernatural. It's a little weird. We can say that. We don't need to be shy about that. Secondly, the church... Needs to continue to be committed to preaching. Paul says, how then will they call on him whom in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? The church must remain Committed to the ministry of preaching. And now by preaching, I mean the exegetical proclamation of the word of God. And I don't mean a TED talk entitled, The One Easy Thing You Can Do to Save the World While You Sip a Latte. Preaching is the prophetic proclamation of the word of God. The supernatural word of God. And the entire life of a church must revolve around that one peculiar act. Because if we don't do that... No one will. There are lots of things that the churches do and do them well and thanks be to God for what they do that the secular world also does. But preaching alone belongs to us and it is the reason we exist. And that means that our work here must be centered on the preaching of the Word of God. It also means that my work as your pastor... Must be centered on the preaching of the Word of God. And that can be tricky. Because as the solo pastor of a 200 member church, I have a lot of different responsibilities. I wear a lot of different hats. I spent time this week working on the 2019 budget. That's me as a financial manager. I spent time this week preparing staff reviews. That's me as a personnel manager. I spent this time this week reading and reviewing material that had been written by staff members and by elders. That's me as an editor. I spent time this week dealing with leaks in the roof and leaks in the boiler system. That's me as a building manager. I spent time this week attending chapel and the Thanksgiving service at Valley Christian School. That's me as a partner in our largest ministry. I spent time this week sending notes of encouragement to people. That's me as a shepherd. I spent time this week mediating a conflict between two of our members. That's me as a peacemaker. I spent time this week running a staff meeting and conferring with individual staff members. That's me as a supervisor. I spent time this week visiting one of our widows who lives in a memory care facility. That's me as a Christian friend. I spent time this week having lunch with a fellow who visited this church last week. That's me as an evangelist. I spent time this week going to a Bible study and to a luncheon with a member of this church that's me as a friend and a pastor I spent time this week in a small group Bible study that's me as a part of the body of Christ I spent time this week interviewing potential officer candidates that's me as a vision caster I spent time this week with a church member burdened with family and marriage issues that's me as a pastoral counselor I spent time this week preparing materials for Tuesday's session meeting that's me as an administrator I spent time this week talking with a woman in crisis looking for financial help. That's me as a deacon. I spent time this week with a woman crying her eyes out in my office because she just can't Cut a break. That's me as a companion in suffering. I spent time this week sitting in the living room of a woman who's not sure she wants to go on living. That's me as a comforter and a counselor. I spent time this week being trained. That was yesterday, right here, on the computer programs which run the service in this place. That's me as a technician. Now, there was nothing special about this week. I do the same thing every week. Week in and week out. I wear a number of hats, but in the midst of all of that stuff, and it's important stuff, both I and the church need to remember that my primary calling, that the church's primary calling is to proclaim the Word of God. Because if we're not doing that, no one will. Preaching takes time. Good preaching takes a lot of time. And I need to be jealous of that time to make sure that I'm focused on what is most central to my calling as your pastor. And the session needs to be jealous of my time to make sure that I'm most focused on what is central to the life of the church. When the apostles became burdened with the non-preaching responsibilities, they ordained helpers, deacons they were called in those days to take up those tasks, important tasks so they could remain focused on prayer and on preaching. The apostles were, of course, imitating Moses, who in the desert appointed 70 to take over the administrative tasks so that he could do what was essential to his ministry, to pray and to proclaim the word of God. If you've ever preached, raise your hand if you preach in this church. We need more of you, by the way. So you, know, you understand that in a Presbyterian church, every elder is authorized to preach. I like hearing from other people preaching in this church. If you ever preach, you know that the 30 minutes that you stand in front of the people is the tip of a very large iceberg. For me, at this point in my ministry, it takes me between, I don't know, 10 and 20 hours a week to prepare my sermon. And even more than the time, it takes my heart and it takes my energy in a way that can't be compared with administrative tasks with the ordinary busy work of running things. It's work that taps me out and it should because I'm going to the word of God and I'm listening to what it is that God is trying to say to us here at this time and this place. And then I try to write that out in a way that we can all understand. It's serious work. May this church... Continue to honor and support the preaching of the word of God for it is the ordinary means that God has ordained for the salvation of his people as Paul says how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard and how are they going to hear without someone preaching. May this church continue to honor and to support the preaching of the word of God. May we do that in this building. May we do it in Valley Christian School, our largest mission. And may we do it with many missionaries that we support in this country and around the world. Echoing the prophet Isaiah, the apostle Paul reaffirms how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. This is the word of God for us today. Let us pray. Father God, we ask that you would add your blessing to the proclamation of your word. And we ask that it would find its root in our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.